That was a beautiful, beautiful song, as well as the others that you blessed us with earlier. Just thinking about that powerful thought, does it give as much as it takes? That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thought about how God is the ultimate giver, isn't he? And uh, that's the, the goal in life, is to be a giver rather than a taker, isn't it? Well, I'm sure some of you have never set foot in a Seventh-day Adventist church before. You know, there's uh, quite a number of our, our regular attendees who are away this particular weekend. There's a regional conference going on in Brunswick, and so that's why some of the chairs are empty. Some of the other ones are typically empty, to our great sadness. But um, if you've never heard of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we're a Protestant denomination that, that uh, holds in great reverence the Scriptures. And one of the noticeable elements of our faith is that we we've been so blessed to realize that God gives us the Sabbath day as a day for for communion with him and with one another and ultimately peace that's why we love what our Jewish brothers and sisters say Shabbat Shalom Sabbath peace just imagine how much peace would be in the world if everyone said we're going to lay down our arms so to speak on that Sabbath day and so we're we celebrate this day for the purpose of that peace because we know we serve a God of peace and of justice. And he sent Jesus to make peace. And we're, we're just hoping to grow in that peace and the grace of God and, and extending love and justice and peace to all. So we're growing. We're not perfect. <laughs> Most of us aren't at least. No, none of us have gotten, none of us have arrived yet, but by God's grace, he will mature us in his love and peace and grace. Why don't we bow our heads now for a word of prayer as we get into God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much that you are a God of peace. And we are told in the Old Testament that at the cross, justice and truth met, peace and righteousness kissed. And we're so amazed that at that cross we see the perfect blend, the perfect tension, the perfect balance between grace and justice. We see it in Jesus, who is a reflection of the heart of God, who is a God of grace and of justice, a God who is long-suffering yet does not clear the guilty. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was visiting a little while ago at a previous church where I pastored with one of the leaders of that church. And as I uh, think some of you know, this is the seventh church that I pastored. So as to keep the individual I'm speaking anonymous, just you understand that it could be one of many other individuals that I pastored before. But the only reason I share the story that I'm about to share is this, to just show where many of us are in our own experience. And as I was visiting with this leader from that church where I was pastoring, in the course of our conversation, he, you know it's a he at least, he mentioned to me, he said, you know, pastor, I think that there are occasions in the course of history when God wants his people to share about him. And then he said, but I also think that there are times in history where God is not as concerned with people sharing about him. And he said, I'm not so sure that we aren't in that time 
where he doesn't necessarily ask us to share the news about him. That startled me greatly. Because as I read the Bible and as I think about that loving, grace-filled, peaceful God, it seems to me that if I catch a glimpse of who he is and how good he is, I want to share that with others naturally, won't I? I want you to open the book of Acts this morning. We're actually beginning a new series just today that's going to go on for six or so sermons going forward on seeking the lost, on sharing the good news that we have heard from God through his word and we have experienced in our lives. And so we're going to look at the book of Acts many times throughout this sermon series. Actually, we will go to the book of Acts. It will not be a chronological or systematic visit of the book of Acts, but we're going to drop in here and there in this wonderful book, the New Testament church, what their experience was after Jesus ascended back up to heaven. So we'll go to Acts chapter 4. The context of this story we're about to read, of course, is that in Acts chapter 2, those apostles are up in the upper room and the Holy Spirit descends upon them and they're able to speak in different languages. And it says that everybody heard the gospel, the good news preached in his or her own language. And Peter, the great apostle, was the one who was preaching this powerful message, talking about the death of Jesus. And when people heard that, they became very overwhelmed with what they had heard. And they said, what should we do now that we have this good news shared with us? And Peter said, of course, repent and be baptized. And we're told in Acts chapter 2 that that 3,000 people gave their hearts to God on that, what we call the day of Pentecost, a very powerful, powerful, powerful experience there in the early church. Well, soon after that, Peter and John are walking up to the temple in Acts chapter 3, and they walk by this man, this beggar, who was, who was looking for some help, looking for some money. And of course, that classic line that I love, I know you're in Acts, you're in Acts chapter 4, but look in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. I love this line. Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. What a joyous day it was for that man. He was looking for money, and what Peter and John gave him instead was Jesus Christ. Which, who is the ultimate healer of all that ails us. That doesn't mean we're going to go from having a negative balance in our bank accounts to a positive balance just because Jesus comes into our hearts. But, you know, when we have Jesus in our hearts and in our lives, we are able to better face those challenges, aren't we? Of course, this caused a great stir, and it also caused Peter and John to have another audience, and they started sharing again the good news about Jesus. And it At that time, two more thousand were added to their number that day because of the powerful testimony of this man who had been healed and the testimony that Peter and John were able to share with those who are now curious about that gospel message. So we're going to pick it up now in verse 4. Sorry, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What a controversial message, wasn't it? That Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. You may recognize today, of course, that many people look at that 
tail and say that's all it is. It's a tail. Even today, people say, oh, no, no, there is no resurrection from the dead. But, you know, there is so much evidence, the empty tomb for one, and all sorts of other evidences that point to the fact that Jesus, through the power of God, was raised from the dead. Notice now, verse 3, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. These two apostles were willing to go to jail. They were willing to give up their life as demonstration that they believed that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. I mean, think about it for a second. Would you be willing to go to jail because you want to hold on to your belief in Santa Claus? Anybody here? Maybe we have a young little kid or boy or girl. No! None of us would be willing to go to jail so as to maintain our belief in Santa Claus. But here are these two men who said, we're willing to go to jail. They didn't believe it was a fable, certainly, did they? They were willing to give up their lives to proclaim the message of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 4, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Verse 5 now, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, speaking of those who are of Jewish background, just as Peter and John were, their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, we need to pause just for a second because there are two names that jump out as I read this story, and that is Annas and Caiaphas. You may recall that just a few weeks before, in fact, probably five or six weeks before, these two men had Jesus standing before them in this exact same location, and they were questioning Jesus. They were asking him these similar questions. Who are you? What are you doing? By what power are you doing these things? Annas and Caiaphas were the men who were having Jesus on trial. And yet here they are a few weeks later, and they have Peter and John now in in their midst, and they're doing the same questioning to them. Notice now verse 8, what Peter says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel... If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you here whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Then he goes on to say that well-known verse in verse 12, that well-known passage, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, Jesus Christ is in the business of saving people, is he not? That's what his whole goal is. He says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus being the ultimate giver, the ultimate reflection of the heart of his Father. He says, I am a giver. I am a self-sacrificing God. You and I, as we've talked about before, 
in previous sermons, you and I are living, breathing, sitting here or standing here right now because of the death of Jesus Christ. Even the air we're breathing has been purchased and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Because of his mercy, we are not consumed. Great is his faithfulness. He is the Savior, as we are told by Paul in the book of 1 Timothy. He is the Savior of all men. Did you know that Jesus has already saved you from the penalty of sin? You and I, because we're selfish people, are we not? Anybody here willing to say that you've overcome your selfishness? I, I, I get tripped up with my selfish heart day after day after day. No sooner do I, do I think I'm doing well than my selfishness comes up and bubbles over. Because I am a taker, not a giver. By nature, I should be dead right now because think of this for a second. We are all born as consumers, are we not? We are all born as takers. That's the natural disposition of my heart. If you don't think so, I'll put up secretly a little camera in my house, or you can do it, and you can see how selfish I am, how I'm, I'm, I'm continuously seeking to be a taker by my nature. And there's no amount of self-improvement plan that has worked in my life to, to, to obliterate my selfishness. And so because we're all consumers, what happens if everyone's just a consumer? You're not going to have any resources left, are you? If we're just taking, 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 there's not going to be anything left. In fact, there'll be no life left because we're just going to take everybody else's life. So it's only by God's grace. You know, the book of Galatians says that Christ came in the fullness of time. I believe that if Jesus didn't come when he came, the world would have self-destructed. But because Jesus Christ came and showed the world what it looks like to be a giver, what it looks like to give instead of take, he started a ripple effect that saved the whole world. Otherwise, think about this. I've mentioned this before. But you know it's by God's grace that there's a few givers in this world? And these few givers are actually keeping this world afloat because a few people, and by God's grace, you and I are learning to be more and more giving than we are taking. But because of a few people, the whole world is not self-destructed because not everybody is just trying to grab, are they? So, Paul, so, so Peter and John say there is salvation in any other name, there is not salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Of course, God is wanting, even though he saved us from, from self-destruction already, he's wanting to have us continue on in that experience, isn't he? He's wanting us to continue on being givers so that we can walk right into the experience of eternal life where everyone is just going to be giving all the time. Won't that be a glorious time? When Christ comes again and he sets the world aright and we just continue on in the, in the giving heart that we've developed here on this earth, that'll be a glorious experience and I look forward to it. What about you? You know, it's interesting. Did you notice who the one is that's speaking here? Who is it? It's Peter. It's Peter. You know, Peter had been in this exact same position about five or six weeks earlier when Jesus was on trial. 
He came into the courtyard where Annas and Caiaphas were. He came in there and he tried to maintain a little, a little, what's the word? What's that? A little distance, yeah. He was trying to stay undercover. And people noticed him, didn't they? And they pressed him and said, hey, wait a minute, don't you know that guy? No, no, don't know him. Three times. He even was turning, he even tor- turned to swearing. He said, no, 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 I do not know this man. Absolutely not. He would not speak up for his Savior. And yet here he is, five or six weeks later, and he's speaking up on behalf of Jesus. What happened? Notice this quotation. I love this perspective that one of my favorite authors has offered. Notice in your study guide. Does everyone have a study guide, by the way? Maybe some slipped in without getting one. Notice these words. And by the way, the uh, answer cheat part is not right at the bottom, but if you just listen closely, you'll be able to get those words. Notice this perspective. The Peter who denied Christ in the hour of his greatest need was impulsive and self-confident differing widely from the Peter who was brought before the Sanhedrin for examination. Since his fall, he had been converted. Isn't that a beautiful reality in the life of those who have responded to God? They have been converted, which very plainly means I've gone from being this type of person to being this type of person, and it happens by a supernatural miracle of God. Not that God forces our hand to do it, but when our hearts are broken by what we've done and how Jesus is in comparison, we can be converted. Notice what this author goes on to say. He was no longer proud and boastful, but modest and self-distrustful. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Usually if you're proud and arrogant and self-confident, you're going to speak right up, aren't you? That's what we think intuitively. And yet when he was proud and boastful and arrogant, he couldn't say anything. He, he welted under the pressure. And now the exact opposite has happened. He's modest, he's self-distrustful, and yet he's speaking up with boldness for Jesus. Going on, however, in the next verse, verse 13, I love this thought. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, there's that word boldness, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Do we have anyone here who qualifies as that? When they perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and here's this line that I love, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful description of the follower of Christ is that if nothing else, somebody could say, you know what? That man, that woman, that boy, that girl has been with Jesus and I can tell. It's a beautiful, beautiful goal to to aspire to, isn't it? To just simply be with Jesus and he changes your life. He turns it right around. He converts you by his grace because Peter's heart had been broken when he realized what he had done, that he said, I don't know this man. I don't know this man. He went out and he realized his sin, his his selfishness, and he looked into the eyes of Jesus there in the courtyard and he saw not condemnation, not anger, not bitterness, 
He saw forgiveness. He saw grace. And it was only in light of what he had done in wronging his Savior over and against the attitude and the compassion that Jesus had for him that he could be converted and his heart could be broken. Have you had that experience, brothers and sisters? Have you looked at where you are, where you should be, versus where God looks at where you can be? Do you look at where Jesus has his eyes of grace, where he has his compassion for you in spite of who you are and what you've done? We don't find that type of of natural compassion in the world. It's only, there are, there are some who proclaim it, although they don't actively follow Christ, but even that is a gift from God. Any good impulse we have, any right thought, any right action, any compassion we might have, we may not recognize it, but it is a gift from God that He has poured out in our hearts. I want to go down, Howard, to, to verse 19. After these men, by the way, these uh, men did something that is kind of humorous when they, if they were to look back on it, they said, okay, we can't do anything about this because if we did something, people would get upset. So here's just a little simple request we have. Just don't talk about Jesus anymore. It'd be like telling my mother to stop talking about her five grandchildren. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone here have grandchildren? <laughs> Soon after I had my kids, boy, Camden, I can remember, that's all I want to talk about. It's, it's a silly request, but these men say, hey, just don't talk about Jesus anymore. You can go on your way. Well, notice what they go on to say in verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot help it. We have no power. Literally, that word in Greek for cannot is the word dunamos, from where we get the word dynamite. Have you seen what dynamite does? They said we, the literal translation of dunamos means power. They say, we do not have the power within us to not talk about Jesus. You can't keep us quiet. Because we have encountered the Christ. We have encountered this God of love and grace and mercy and justice and peace. We have encountered Him. And we're not gonna, we, we can't keep quiet about it. You know, Peter, before he had been converted, he was actually powerless to say anything about Jesus. He, he didn't have it within him. But now that he has seen the cross of Jesus Christ, now that he has seen the forgiveness, now that he has seen his grace, he says, I actually don't have the power not to talk about him. You can't keep me quiet. I am unstoppable because I need to tell others about how much God loves me and he cares for me and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and all the beautiful things about God. I can't keep that quiet. I can't keep it contained within me. So it's not even a question of should I or shouldn't I. It's just that it's not even a part of the equation because I cannot keep quiet. Have you ever come across a young person, a little boy or a little girl who like has the case of the giggles? You know, and they're just giggling and they cannot stop it and they try to put the hand over their mouth. They just can't stop it because something just gets in them. Remember a few years ago, Camille, when she was a teacher, she used to have this young little girl, we'll call her name Becky. She used to bring Becky home from school. 
And uh, at first, Becky, who was only, I think, five or six at the time, she, uh, she would just drive quietly in her car seat, and she wouldn't say anything. And, uh, but after a while, Camille realized that she could talk. And in the 30 or so minute, 30, 25 or 30 minute drive, it was constantly talking. Becky, hey, Mrs. Brace, did you hear? Guess what? Josh did this. Mrs. Brace, did you know that? Mrs. And, and the thing was, she would say Camille's name over and over and over again. Mrs. Brace, Mrs. Brace, Mrs. Brace, Mrs. Brace, Mrs. Brace, Mrs. Brace, Mrs. Brace. So Camille decided one day to count how many times she said her name. And in a 25-minute car ride, she said her name, Mrs. Brace, 32 times. She just couldn't keep her quiet. She was so excited about telling Mrs. Brace about everything. So Camille did what any intelligent adult will do. She started saying, you know, Becky, let's play a game. Let's see who can stay quiet the longest. (laughs) And so they would drive all the way home. And, you know, Camille loves just a precious, cute little girl. But after a long day of teaching, as you can imagine, you could use a little piece, right? So inevitably what would happen is a few minutes before they would get to Becky's home, Camille would say something. Oh, you won again. Oh, I can't believe it. She was able to trick little Becky into being quiet. But you couldn't do that with the apostles. They were so passionate. They were so on fire. They were so excited about sharing the good news about who Jesus was and what he could do in your life that they said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What about you, brothers and sisters? You look at your own life. I look at my life. And I say to myself, you know, have I had that experience with God that is so powerful and so intimate and so loving that I just have to tell people about it? Not in an annoying way. It's not like you're the person on the street corner that's passing out little pamphlets that says you're going to go to hell if you don't repent. Not that type of thing. We're talking about in a very loving way, just saying, you know, I want to tell you about my friend. I want to tell you about the man who's changed my life. Because I just can't help it. So it's not even a question, like I said. It's not even a question about am I or am I not. It's not a question of should I or shouldn't I. And by the way, if you and I are sitting here and saying, man, my life, you know, I'm, I'm scared to tell people about my, my best friend, Jesus. I feel like it's awkward, you know, to bring them up in the middle of, you know, lunch at work or wherever I am. And again, we're not talking about doing it in an annoying way or are you saved? You know, you have to make a decision right here or you'll be lost forever. That's not the the God I I know and love. He he shares in a very kind-hearted, loving, gentle way. But he just says, you know what? I'm just a human being who's found something that... I have been blessed by, and I just want to share it with you. I'm not going to try to force you to do it. It's just, you know, if I know something that is good, why would I not want to share that with other people? Why would I not want to to tell them about the person who's changed my life? A few years ago, I realized that there is no such thing as a silent Christian. There's no such thing. It's an oxymoron. That, again, it doesn't mean we're shouting from the rooftops and and taking out ads that just berate everybody who's not a Christian. That's not the way God operates. But again, 
we cannot help but speak about the things which we have seen and heard. And you, like I say, you may be looking at your own life and saying, I don't, I'm not there. And so what we often do is we just try to cut out the middle man or the middle process, and we say, okay, I just have to try harder to share my faith. I have to try harder to tell people about Jesus. But no, that's not what the, that's not what the solution is. The solution is we ask ourselves, you know what? Have I been with Jesus? Because the sharing is a symptom. It is a fruit. And it is not something we simply say, okay, I'm just going to add this to my life now. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more conscious of it. I'm going to be less nervous. No. It's saying, you know what? Maybe I could spend more time with the God who has given me my life. And it is out of that experience, out of that walk with him, that we'll naturally want to share. It will be spontaneous. I'm going to end with a couple stories. One is a positive and one is a negative. Well, they're probably both somewhere in between. You know, a few years ago, when Camille and I were living in New Hampshire... There was this gas station that we would frequently go to. And for various reasons, Camille and I are on, a, on the cash system of, of uh, our finances. I would highly recommend it for many different reasons. One of them is of great benefit is that when you pay for cash, when you go to the gas station, you actually get to interact with things that are called human beings. Have you heard of these people? <laughs> Instead of going to the pump and just swiping your card and, you know, pumping your gas and then getting in your car, you can actually interact with people. And so as I was going to this one gas station in our small little town in New Hampshire, I would get to know a little bit just by the faces and, you know, very minimal interaction. I would get to know these people who worked at the gas station. This one particular time, I went to the gas station and I paid you know, however much I thought I was going to need, and I went, pumped my gas, and I, I, uh, I went back into the, you know, station where I was going to retrieve the money that I needed after I pumped my gas, and I noticed that the young man who was attending there at the gas station was outside smoking a cigarette, and he wa- he quickly threw his cigarette down, and he, you know, stomped it out, and he retreated right back into the store. And I saw this young lady in front of me. She walked in, and I was behind her. And so I'm standing there in line at, behind the young lady. And uh, I just kind of overhear her say to him, well, how's it going with your attempt to stop smoking? And uh, I you know, kind of piqued my attention. And so I don't remember what he said, or maybe I didn't exactly hear what he said, but she got her change, and she... She left, and I stepped up to the counter, and I said, you know, I need the change on pump three or whatever. And then I said to him, I said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I overheard the young lady in front of you say that you were trying to stop smoking. I said, you know, how's that going for you? And he says, oh, well, it's, it's not going very well. And then he said something that was very, very interesting. He says, you know, Stopping smoking is very, very hard. I'm aware of that. I, I, I've never smoked a cigarette, but I know that it's a very hard thing to do. But there's something that some of you may know, but many of the others of you don't know. And that is, Seventh-day Adventists are the foremost leaders in helping people stop smoking. We formulated back 50-plus years ago 
a program to help people stop smoking before it was ever popular to stop smoking. It's called the Five-Day Plan. It was formulated by a a doctor by the name of Ken McFarland. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he actually was... No, I'm not going to say that because I think I am mistaken. But this has been the most successful program to help people stop smoking. Over 20 million people in its history have stopped smoking as a result of the Five-Day Plan. Because we believe that God wants people to be in good health, right? And so I've never let out in a five-day plan. My dad, who's a pastor, has. And so in the back of my mind, I think to myself, you know, I can really be of help to this young man. He's tried other things that haven't worked. I can be of assistance to him. This is what I'm thinking. You know, he gives me my change. He puts it on the counter. I go down, I reach, and I pull that money, I put it into my pocket. And I say to him, good luck. And I turn, and I leave. I get in my car, and I start, I start making excuses. Oh, you know, I'll see him again later. I'll, you know, offer again. I don't have a business card. How is he going to get my contact information? It will be awkward. You know, I see him a few times later, but the moment had passed. You know how that goes. Now, that seems kind of maybe overly dramatic to you. But, you know, apart from any eternal significance, did I show that young man love if I knew of something that could help him, yet I was too timid to offer it? I came up silent. When a young man was there, just opened up. In in baseball terms, when a pitcher throws something that anybody can hit out of the park, it's called a meatball. This young man had thrown me a meatball, and all I had to do was just say, you know what? I know a program that could maybe help you quit this habit that is destroying your life. And my mouth said, good luck, and moved on. I don't know if any of you have heard of a man by the name of Penn Gillette. If uh, I add his partner to the title, you probably, maybe more of you have heard of him, Penn and Teller. They are a comedy illusionist team that Penn is really tall and has a ponytail, wears glasses. Teller is shorter and he doesn't talk. Um, I think he does talk, but when they do their routine, he doesn't. They're out in Las Vegas now. They do a show and A few years ago, I came across this video on YouTube where Penn shares this open diary just about thoughts he has. And Penn, as some of you may know, is a very open and avowed atheist. He is just just zealously so. In fact, he has multiple cars and his license plates say, like, atheist, no God, you know, stuff like that. He is very, very, very openly and zealously and if I may say so, evangelically atheist. He just, he just is passionate about his atheism. But a few years ago, he shared this little encounter that he had. I want to read part of it for you, and then part of it is in your study guide. He, he wanted to share this encounter. He shared this encounter that he had. He was there doing a show, and after the show was over, a man walked up to him. And he recognized this man from the day before, 
He was at the show the night before and he had won a prize or something like that. And he saw when this man started approaching him that he had a book in his hands. And as the man approached him, he said, Here, Penn, I'd like you to have this. And he looked down and the book was a New Testament and Psalms Gideon Bible. And this man said to Penn, he said, You know, I'm not nuts, I'm not crazy but I just think that you would benefit from this book. And now this man, no doubt, knows where Penn is and his views on God, and yet he opened himself up. Notice what Penn said on this YouTube video as he was reflecting on that. He said, this is Penn talking now, he looked at me right in the eye and it was really wonderful. It was really wonderful, he said. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive, and he looked at me right in the eyes, and he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem in any way like empty flattery. He was really calm and nice and sane, and he looked me in the eyes and talked to me. Now notice this. This is in your study guide now. Notice this that this atheist says. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. This is what this man had told him he was doing. He said, I'm proselytizing. I'm not nuts. I'm not crazy, but I want you to have this. He says, Penn says, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe, notice this now, if you believe there is a heaven and hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, notice this now. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Wow. He goes on to say, I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe that, there, that the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. You following his line of logic there? And this is more important than that. He says, and I've always thought, and I've written about that, the guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written, which he had written in a little note to me, and then like five phone numbers for me to an email address if I want to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person giving, living his life right doesn't change that. But I'll tell you, he was a very, very very good man. How many varies? Three. He was a very, very, very good man. And that's real important. And I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, which religion does, there's no doubt. Not the God of the religion, but religion does. But that was a good man who gave me that book. What a sobering question. How much do you have to hate somebody to 
cannot tell them about a solution to what's ailing them. Shall we be silent? Shall we not share with people about the love and the grace and the peace and the justice and the goodness of our God? Shall we not share with them? But should it even be a question?